Dave here. One of the beauties of podcasts is that people can listen to them however they want and in any order they like. So talking about things that are date-specific can sometimes lock an episode into a specific moment in time. We try to avoid this whenever we can because we want this project to be as timeless as possible. That being said, I do feel it's important to acknowledge certain things in the busking world as they happen, so I'll likely continue to do so here. The news I want to share this time around is something that many of you may already know. On Tuesday, May 17, 2016, the godfather of Canadian street performing festivals, Dick Finkel, passed away. On June 5th, friends, family, and performers gathered in Edmonton to pay tribute to the man who co-created the very first street performers festival in Canada and produced it for 15 years. Dick joined co-founder of the Busker Hall of Fame, Robert Butterfly Man Nelson, for episode 7 of the Stories from the Pitch podcast and shared a bit of history and his philosophy about how he created what is now the longest-running street performers festival in North America. Where did you get the idea to use street performers? I had first seen street performers on trips to San Francisco and always enjoyed them. Then I was involved with folk music festivals and a friend of mine came up with the idea of doing a busker's festival. So I basically put together the first street performers festival here in Edmonton in 1985. The model was, let's invite the best, we can't pay them shit, so let's treat them with respect, dignity, put them out up at a hotel, pick them up at the airport, treat them like human beings. You set the tone. You just simply set the tone for the next 10 years of busking. If, after hearing that memory, you're feeling a bit nostalgic, we invite you to revisit the entire episode and remember two great men from the world of street theater who are no longer with us. All right, let's get to it. You're dealing with an awful lot of fragile egos. Yeah. And the more insecure that, well, we, I think a lot of us were or maybe even are still insecure and you get outside validation. You do a show and it works. You know, you've gone on a street or you've gone into a park somewhere. You've gathered an audience that didn't want to watch you, don't know you're there, haven't paid to see you. You get a big, massive crowd and then they give you huge amounts of money and applaud you. What's not to feel good about? So if you're mildly insecure, that's a fabulous career. However, everything has its downside. If you go out and you bomb, which every street performer does... You are you're in pit of depression for the next month. Yeah, yeah. or unless, until the next good show. Until the next good show is usually the case, yeah. yeah. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Bill Ferguson is a strong personality. He speaks with a commanding tone, he exudes an incredible sense of confidence, and he's the sort of character that gravitates towards creating a palpable tension with an audience that provides the springboard for the style of comedy that he presents. I'll admit that when I first met Bill back in 1989, I didn't know exactly what to make of his approach, as I was both intimidated by it and, at the same time, drawn to it. Sure, he does a stunt in his show where he collects a variety of random objects from the audience, allows the crowd to pick what they think are going to be the most difficult ones to juggle, then proceeds to juggle them, or attempts to. 
But this simple explanation comes nowhere near capturing the fantastic psychological journey that Bill presents during the course of his performance, an adventure that's full of choices and consequences, risk and ultimately reward. Eric Amber hooked up with Bill in the green room at the 2015 Vancouver International Buskers Festival to dig a little deeper into the history of this performer-producer and discover what's driven him for over three decades. Years filled with some great stories from the pitch. Okay, so uh, here we are in Vancouver. Welcome back to Vancouver, uh, Bill Ferguson. Well, thank you very much, Eric Amber. <laughs> <laughs> How long has it been since I saw you? At least five years. Uh, it's got to be at least five, maybe more. Right. And when did you leave Canada? Jesus, I date, you know, what a man of my age is to get on. You don't remember things as well. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. Probably 13, 14, probably about 14 years ago. Okay. You've been in England ever since? No. No, I went and lived in Perth. Western Australia, right? For a year and probably a year and a half, somewhere around there. Nice spot. It was lovely. You're a man of the world. I certainly have gotten around. <laughs> My semen is everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say that. No, no, you can edit that up. Yeah. <laughs> Or you can leave it in if you like. I don't really care. No, no, you know, it's a sense of pride at this uh, point. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, I've been all over the place. It's been fabulous. What a life. Who would have thought? You know, yeah, who would have thought? So many of us. I, last night we were talking about how some people look at this as a career. Oh, it's completely changed. I've been at it for, well, I've been doing shows for 34 years. And when I started, every street performer I knew really stumbled into it quite by accident yeah. and found themselves on the street doing shows. And many had other things in their plate. They would not really know where to go, uh, feeling like they didn't fit in, and found a street show that just gave them a sense of accomplishment and a value and fit into the world somehow when they didn't before. And, so a and it was an accidental for the most part. But now, with all the circus schools and uh, all the professional circus stuff that's been generated over the last maybe 10 years, you're getting people who are literally treating this like a career path. So the atmosphere of shows at festivals now has changed fairly dramatically. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, many people know I produce a number of events, and uh, I just did one in England, and at 9.30 in the evening on a Saturday night after a lovely day of shows, everybody was thrilled, happy, big crowds... They all went home to bed <laughs> at 9.30 <laughs> on a Saturday evening. What's that? A career. Yeah. yeah. They're so serious-minded. Yeah, right. That, you know, We were pioneers, weren't we? Yeah, certainly. We were the pilgrims. Well, and certainly Alex Elixir and I in Vancouver were amongst the first professional street performers to make a living at it. There was a group before us called Dick and Dick. Oh, Dick and Dick. Yes, we got to talk yes, about yes, them. Yes. And they started a little bit before we did. Who were Dick and Dick? I never met them. Uh, Dick and Dick were two guys in Vancouver. Two Dicks? The two Dicks, yeah. Well, I can't remember their names. John. Richard? John was one of them. Was it Richard? It's so long ago. It's so John, long John ago. John Thomas and Richard? Was it Richard? Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> but they were quite hilarious, and they had a very slick team show. But it was hilarious to watch them. Yeah. Not their show. Oh. Off stage. Oh, right. Off stage, they literally hated each other. Oh. Alex and I continued on with our show, but um, their show kind of died because they hated each other so much. 
but the, towards the end, they were literally having a street brawl with each other before going on. More than one occasion, I saw them with black eyes, bleeding noses. Uh, really? Full-on fistfights. Yeah. But there must have been a time when they did get along. What, what was their act? God, you're asking me questions that were 34 years ago. What was their act? It was a very classic uh, juggling Two-minute team. Two-minute juggling show, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about a yeah, ten-minute juggling show, really. Are they still in jail? Uh, they're still in jail, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're not both still alive. I, uh, I think, yeah, well, they, I don't know. I think one of them is alive. One of them, but I think... I think one of them has passed away. Well, one of them, in, oh, that's how they ended up leaving. One of them inherited a bunch of money. And that was not a good thing for him. Oh, no. Oh, no. That wasn't good at all. Because he stopped performing altogether and, and went down a different path, career path. Right. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> you're, you're a polite man. I, well, I, I have Canadian roots. <laughs> not in my show. No, hell no. There's another, uh, there's a Montrealer in the room right here, Jean-Michel, mm. and, and David are doing a double act at the moment. They are. You're also from Montreal. I was born and raised in Montreal, yeah. And I left when I was about 17, went west. Oh, yeah. And did jobs like normal children. Where in in Montreal? Uh, I grew up in uh, Lachine. Oh, yeah, in China. Yeah, no, yeah, in Little China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Little China. I just heard that story, yeah. I said that when the people came, they thought it was China, so they named it Lachine. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up there, spent most of my time there. Okay. Left home. Uh, quite young. It wasn't an environment I wanted to live in. So I went out on my own. I didn't. I think my first job was on a railroad, building railroads. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. I went to Alberta, Edmonton. just an oil boom. Walked into town, got a job in a day, 10 hours a day, making a fortune. And all I had to do was drive a uh, forklift while making a railroad. We got to the site, and the boss said, if anybody had driven a forklift, and I immediately put my hand up. As I was looking at the other stuff in the ground, where it's you know railroad ties and rail themselves, that people were going to have to lift. And I went, yeah, yeah, that's me. Got in there, tried to start it up, and the guy knew immediately I'd never driven a forklift before, but let me have the job. You know what? Sometimes anyone, people who are ambitious enough, yeah, yeah, just say yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good improv. Door open. Well, I didn't know it was improv at the time, but yeah, and numerous jobs. Worked in bars. I worked in the meat packing plant. Oh, Bob, uh, Flying Bob uh, was a... Uh, a butcher. A butcher, yeah. Was he? Yeah, I Industrial just butcher. The, there was no kill floor at the place I worked. Uh, it was just, you'd receive the meat in trucks. Right. And my job was, was, was a receiver. Right. Which was kind of funny, because I'd smoked a lot of pot and drank a lot of beer back then. <laughs> and we got caught, me and my roommate, smoking pot out the back by the meat people in Edmonton, Alberta. And I had long hair, which is not very popular at that time. Right. <laughs> And because we were so good at unloading the trucks, they just left us alone. Nobody had ever unloaded two, and we were unloading two a day. So they didn't really care if we smoked pot out the back. It was kind of funny. Yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. They're high. They're high, and they're doing a great job. When were you a taxi driver? Uh, Vancouver. Oh. Uh, I ended up moving to Vancouver a number of years later and starting to do shows. Uh, when I first got here, I was a gardener. I did garden maintenance. I was registered for school. I, my planning, a career was to be a um, landscape design or a cultural design. And uh, I ran into a guy juggling on the way home. Oh, yeah. And he taught me. And within a year, I was out on the street. Right. I just I fell in love with juggling. I was hooked. Well, what made you go on the street? Like, what made you think to do? Well, actually, Dick and Dick. Oh. 
had a gig that they didn't want. And Alex and I used to meet deck and deck, and we did, once a week we would go and juggle. We'd, you know, parks, buildings, empty buildings, whatever. We'd just go and juggle once a week. And Alex and I were very, very good, but Dick and Dick said they didn't want to do it, and it was like, at the time it was 200 or $300 to do this indoor gig. So Alex and I, we took the gig. For the next month or so, we wrote a show. It was very much a Dick and Dick clone show at the time, and we went to do this gig. We were entertainment for um, men's stag night. Oh. A bunch of lawyers and very expensive stag night. And the headline act was a transvestite stripper. So we, we worked really, really hard, and they hated us. All they wanted us to do was take our clothes off. But coincidentally, this particular gig that we'd worked so hard to do, we walked out onto the street after, and it was a Friday night on downtown Granville Street. And we looked at each other, lots of people on the street, and said, Want to give it a go? Yep. And we got a big crowd, and I think we made like, you know, 20 or $40. And this was the best money, best time in the world, and that was it. There was no turning back. And funnily enough, you and Alex are both here in Vancouver yeah. doing the Granville Island Busker Festival. Not the Granville Island. Busker. No, no, this is Granville, Granville Street. Street. Yeah. yeah. Well, Alex is only here because he knew I was coming. Nice. We communicated that I was coming over. Nice. And he said, well, I'll take a trip over and visit because I haven't seen him for so many years. Yeah, I haven't seen him in ages either. Yeah, we used to work together. We, oh, God, in the early days, we'd do a half-hour show. I think the most we ever did in one day was 16. And we worked all through summer, winter. I, I can remember us with shovels clearing snow off the pitch in order to do shows. I guess that's the beauty of Vancouver. You can It's a year-round pitch. Uh, yeah, it can be, of course, yeah. And Alex and I, of course, went our own ways after a while. We never really wanted to work together, but the opportunity from the show came up, so we took it. Well, those little things are what push you in the direction until you're, I guess... Yeah, I think it was uh, maybe eight months, nine months, ten months that we were together, and then at that point we both had enough confidence in ourselves that we went off to do our own solo shows. Right. And then we both have remained solo shows since. And when did you start doing the show that became your show? Mm. With the pie. When I first, well, yeah, probably maybe a year after Alex and I had left. I was a classic juggler. I did cigar boxes, devil stick, torches, knives, all that stuff. And slowly I was realizing that my mouth was better than my juggling. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And the juggling became much less important. And I'd seen a guy do a pie in the face routine. He had just come through town. And I asked him if, if I could do that routine because I liked it. It was challenging the audience to give objects. And he says, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a student. I only, I only do it in the summer. So if you want to do it all the time, yeah, go ahead. No problem. And that's where the show started to pie in the face. Right. And that's evolved substantially since the beginning. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I started, it was a very, very aggressive show. And, I mean, I probably scared quite a few people at those days. It's great that the whole revenge element that you give the Well, that child. didn't happen in the first part. Okay. That's an evolution of the, of the show. Yeah. In the beginning, I used to just never give a kid a chance to pie anybody. I would pie their father on my own. I right. would hold the pie. And then eventually it evolved, and I fell into a trick with the kid of giving him a chance to pie me or the father. And in order to not take too many pies in my face, I'd offer the kid money to pie their parents. And that has evolved into a great fun over the years. 
Yeah, you can see the wheels in a kid's head turning. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, fantastic. Yeah. But there is like, there's some weird stuff, too. When you get to do it quite a bit, you can see which kid would really love to pie their father, but is terrified. Because if oh, they right. go home, something bad is going to happen. Oh, yeah, you can see yeah. that. So in those situations, you obviously don't let the kid do that. And you take it, and you give the kid the fiver anyway. So, you know, you want your audience to win. So you've become an expert at reading people. Uh, well, I went back to school, and I had custody of my son when he was five. So career again sort of took over, and the instability of street. At that time, I was still very new, and I wasn't making a whole lot of money. So I'd, in the winters, I drove cab. That's when I started driving cab, to answer your original question. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're good at this interviewing stuff, aren't you? Well, Bringing I'll, me back to focus, I'll just you? I'll just ask you questions. You can answer any, any of them you want. I want, yeah? All right, fine. Yeah. There's a book called The Book of Tells. Yeah. Written by an old... Oh, the poker thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It works with carnies, too. Yeah, well, I studied psychology. I went back to school and studied psychology and worked in the field for about a year. Okay. People would come into my little room and tell me about all their problems. Right. And at the end of, close to the end of the year, I never said it out loud, but in my head I was thinking, fuck, I, I really wanted to just hit them. <laughs> just hit them and say, do anything different. I don't care. Just don't come here and whine and bitch about the same problem week in, week out, and do nothing different. <laughs> at that point, I kind of realized it's not my kind of work. <laughs> I've never gone back to that job ever since. You've always been the tough love kind of dad character. Yeah. On stage, yeah. in your show, even yeah. amongst the other performers, certainly to me, yeah. and now as a festival director. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've always had that. I'm the dad kind of well, yeah, I've got a personality. Strong, strong personality. How people interpret that is entirely up to them. Was your dad like that? My father. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a salesman. He was very charismatic. Strong, strong character, yes. What yeah. did he sell? Construction materials. Oh. Yeah, he was gone. He was on the road a lot. Right. When he came back home, he was not a happy man usually because he had having a fling on the side. Right. So it was kind of like an obligation that he'd have to come home. And he was never really a happy man in the house. Right. It's fine. I just split. And so as, as I got old enough. And I pushed you out. Well, of course. Of course. Oh, you like to go pushing down this emotionally baggage drainage path, don't you? No, I just, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to dodge and weave. Hey, okay, my yeah, three. fine, fine. I have no issues with my father at all. <laughs> I, I'm sad that we and I never had a good relationship. Is this better for you? <laughs> You're the gonna... psychologist. <laughs> so we just sit, can, can I lie down now? Yeah. Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's given me a, an incredible existence. Yeah. And so, how, like, what about your son? What was, were you... Uh... He came with me to a lot of the gigs. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember, of course, I remember. Yeah, he used to come with me for a lot of gigs. I pulled him out of school one year and took him to Australia for three months. Oh, that would have been fun. Well, the school gave me his curriculum, and our deal was that he had to do an hour a day, four days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, serious schoolwork. And when we came back, he was ahead of the class. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he probably was thinking, we should skip school more often. Oh, he had a great time. Yeah, he's, we're living in Australia for three months. Yeah. Christmas Day, we decided to go to the beach. So we spent Christmas Day on the beach in Sydney. Yeah, it's um, it's a hard one. Uh, beach. Manly Beach. Great beach. Fabulous beach. Great pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's still a pitch there. Yeah, in that mall. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, some of our first shows were there. 
Yours? Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. That's I never did a show in that pitch. Really hot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you always had to wait as the, like right five o'clock when the sun went. Oh, as soon as it disappeared off the uh, off the mall. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then you could get a crowd because it just bakes there, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I remember that uh, the, the very first show we ever did there. We were broke, and we yeah. didn't even have enough money for the to ferry. Get back to on get the ferry. Back. <laughs> so we we had to make a show happen, right? Yeah, right, right. And made enough. Well, it started raining. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfect. And I remember thinking, "No, I need this money." Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I started screaming yeah. at the sky and like shaking my fist. Yeah, yeah. And did then, you not yell your father's name and <laughs> scream and holler at him as well to blame him for your position? <laughs> a bit. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> and what was worse is that the van that we had purchased to like drive around Australia. Yeah, broke. Broke. Yeah, of course. Of and course. we were, you know, effed. Yeah. But then the sun broke and we did a show and we made enough money we bought uh, bus tickets to Adelaide. Oh, right, right. And our career changed. But like, yeah. that was a very sort of... I think I remember in Adelaide it was a fringe festival that you guys were at, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was 2002. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I think... That I was a fabulous... I remember doing... There was a pitch outside the Spiegel tent. Yeah. For the street performers yeah. at night. Yeah. And there was a hill that would rake upwards. Yeah. And people were doing, I, I remember doing a show there. It was, my show at that point was quite strong. And doing a show to like 800 to 1,000 people. Was, yeah. The crowds were absolutely enormous. It was well, that, a lot of fun. The uh, Spiegel tent in the early days, they allowed the buskers to be there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It brought crowds, but then they got so big that they. Stopped it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because then the buskers, they they get all these privileges. Yes. And then they fuck it up by being dickheads. Sometimes. Yeah. I, I remember that Adelaide Festival. You were there. Byron Bertram was there. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was on the wagon, and I was telling you... Oh, those were joyful days. I was like, I'm never drinking again. Yeah, no, you know, and I had, I'd maybe gone a couple months, maybe five months, yeah, yeah, yeah. without drinking. And I was telling you, no, this is it. I'm never drinking again. And Byron and you just kind of had a look at each other, like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. That same night, I came back and I ran into you, and mm. I was drunk. <laughs> I had a black eye. <laughs> I was covered in like lipstick, yeah, right, and right. I had two girls on my arm, and, yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. and you were like, "Didn't you?" And I was like, "Ah, nah, never mind." <laughs> well, I, I had some drug and alcohol issues when I was young, and I stopped. Yeah, you were straight I did it all. I was a, a long time for over twenty-one years, just about twenty-one years. Was it hard to maintain? Well, I think that kind of added to this picture that people had of me because everybody was chilled and relaxed and partying and stuff, and I wouldn't do any of that. I would go and sleep at 11, be up at 7 in the gym before doing shows. Right. And so everybody kind of, I guess, looked at me a bit more sternly or more like I might have been more severe as a human being because of the way I, my show is very forceful very strong character and then I'm not doing anything wrong no drinking no drugging so everybody loved to find flaw with any part of it so I think that was added to the uh, to the picture well also that oh is he going to look down on us because he doesn't drink and we're all 
getting drunk and being oh, ridiculous. Oh, uh, no, I never did. No, we. I know that now, yeah, yeah, yeah. but at the time. No, I just thought, no, no, well, they're good for them. One of the things I used to remark at is I, I would tell people, I'd go, you know, you go to these parties with these people and they start drinking and that's fine and you're all playing poker and having a good time. And I would sit with them till 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. I would just, at a certain point, disappear. Not even say goodnight. And the next day, they would, con- that night they would have continued on and gone and looked at, like, I remember, was it, it might have been you in Edmonton, where people would go to this, these lights that were so bright and intense that they would look at them and their eyes would see blue or something like that afterwards. as as a vague memory of that. I would see the people the next day and they'd go, do you remember those blue lights? I was in bed for fucking three hours by then. <laughs> it's called, I remember that, it's called Purple City. That Purple City, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's where you like stare into like a really high-powered light yeah, until yeah. your eyes burn. burn. <laughs> and then when you look up at the regulars, every, everything's purple. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, your yeah. eyes are fucked up. Yeah, I just used to find it very amusing. <laughs> Stupid. Yeah, no judgment at all. <laughs> no. It's just like that was very, very funny. Hey, speaking about your show, um, you have this way of demanding people do things. You know, like, you know, the bit where you say to the father, give me your wallet. Yes, and they do. They just, they just hand over no your questions. wallet. Not everybody can do that. I've noticed not many can. There's it is a sense that, I mean, I've got a few things working in my favor that way. One is I am, you know, I'm not a weak person. I'm a strong-minded, strong presence. I don't walk around with my shoulders hunched or staring at the floor. I'm, I open quite strong that way. And I have a deep voice. And I have the confidence. And you put them all together, and it's a very, it's, you have quite a lot of power there. Yeah, you know, and I've learned to use that to the best of my ability. They just hand over your their Whatever. wallet, and you take money out of oh, it. Oh, fuck! Over the years, they've handed me their babies. They've <laughs> handed me, I mean, anything at all that I wanted, I could just easily take. I've had people undress on the streets. I've had you know women take their tops off, their bras off. You name it, it's happened in the street. And I've had people take their artificial leg off and give it to me. <laughs> Did you juggle it? Uh, yeah, that was kind of a weird one, though. <laughs> yeah. I take the guy's leg, and the entire audience just went politically correct, silent. Yeah. I mean, the energy was very, very weird. It was going very well until I took this guy's leg, and then it just dumped. And then all of a sudden, about a minute, all of a sudden, he started laughing hysterically. The entire audience now it could release. Right. And that's sort of one of the styles that I use. I like to create tension. And I like to use my sense of authority with the audience to create tension. Some sense of uncomfortableness with a wink. It's always got to have a wink so that it's acceptable. But you can push it very, very hard. And using that to, to get the audience to do what you want. And they're tense. If you give them something funny afterwards, then their humor level increases far more than if you just stand there telling a joke. Mm-hmm. Then you have to build an entire momentum of tension with your style of humor. Whereas if you just build tension purposely, then anything you do that's mildly funny is funnier. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of one of the things I'd learned very, very early. So, how often do you think that, just to bounce around a little bit, how often do you think the audience wants to see you punished? 
for the way that... Always. Yeah. But the kid doesn't always pick you. Rarely now. Because, well, I mean, you could... it enough that, you know, I'll pay the kid $50. (laughs) You go up that much? Oh, fuck. I had a bidding war with the audience one time for the kid. Oh. And it went to $62. I had $60, Canadian dollars, in my pocket. And the audience pooled together as a group and raised $62 to give to the kid if he would buy me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, they, yeah it's, you know. they didn't hate you, but they didn't want... They, they wanted, wanted retribution. Yeah. <laughs> and they wanted the kid to give it to me. Oh, that's here in Vancouver. Uh, uh, that was, yeah, 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 at the P&E many, many, many years ago. Do you think that's a, a Vancouver thing? They're very social justice sort of collective hive mentality? Uh, yeah, well, I don't, as you know, I don't live here anymore. I live right. in England, and I've worked over in Europe now for quite a long time. I do quite nice work over there, and they don't respond that way at all. Oh, no? No, no they just see me as a very strong character presenting material this way. There is no retribution for them. Their perception of art on the street or street theater, it's not street performance, it's street theater. They don't want to see somebody just juggle five ball anymore and do trick, 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 trick. It's boring. Yeah. You know, the history is much longer there. They want to see a character. It's like um, Dirty Fred's another good example. He can't work over here. Well, he's called Dirty Fred. For a reason. But in Europe, he is adored. Right. They love him over there and works tons you know, because his character is honest and it's strong and it's consistent from beginning to end, which is similar to what I do. I don't swear or, you know, piss in my mouth, but... Because you know. <laughs> swearing and pissing in your mouth, those are kind of the same. Well, you know, Dirty Fred has a bit where he does that, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I've only heard. Oh, yeah, I've seen it a few times. We're in uh, Holland at a big, big festival, an art-type festival called Limburg. And he and I were on the same pitch. He was on before me, and I was closing that evening. And I watched him pee in his mouth, swear at the audience. And he does it in such a way, I have a pie, right? And because I don't necessarily want to get it in my face every time, I make an, another choice for a kid, which is creates a new dynamic and a new blah, blah, blah. Fred's style is very, very good, but he gives the audience a chance for a retribution in the sense that they get to throw balloons at him mm-hmm. at the end of his show. So they allow that whole thing to go through, and he builds his stuff for that retribution. Right. That's his psychology. Yeah, 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 of course. Mm-hmm. So when you left Vancouver mm. and you went to Europe, or Perth. you went to Perth, yeah. <clears throat> so when you ended up in the UK? Yeah, yeah. About a year and a bit later. Do you find it hard to adjust from doing your shows here? To go there? Uh, I didn't do very many shows in England. Oh, no? No. No, England, there's uh, too many street performers out there that don't require a high salary. And the work is really an awful lot of pedestrian malls. And you get like 300 pounds for a day, and you do three shows in a day. or It's really not very good. I would go over more into mainland Europe and to Ireland and stuff where people were... Uh, very, very happy to have my style come in. It was unusual. It's unique. There isn't another Bill Ferguson out in the world, or no, you had a or you, William Lee or any other strong. You definitely characters. had a unique show. Yeah, and and the audiences there really enjoyed it, loved it. And it's not like something you could. Oh, I just take that 
bit or this bit. You can't do it. Your show is. Well, I don't have a bit. Yeah, yeah. You can, so I'm not even sure what's going to happen half the time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. It's just you know once you understand your character on stage, uh, you know where you can go with it. The possibilities are huge. You know you don't have to build a trick. You can just respond as a character to the situation in front of you. Mm -hmm. It's like improv, I guess, in some way. Well, certainly my experience was because we had our infancy, just so to speak, in Australia. Mm. We developed a cheeky kind of behavior. Yeah, that didn't always go well in Canada. Oh, right, right, right. It's too polite here. Oh, it's a very polite place. Yes, you're like oh. You're being too cheeky. Well, I managed quite well here. Oh, I remember you did. Yeah, you used to. Well, English Bay was where I first saw you perform. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I guess I was one of the early ones there as well. It seemed to work. You know, I've always been very, very good. I'm not uh, in busking stuff. I've never been shy about asking for money. Right. A lot That's of people never, are. Never, ever, ever been my issue, <laughs> and I find it. Curious, how come people go to the street to busk to ask for money, but can't ask for money? Yeah, that's an odd combination. That one. So, if that's not your weakness, what was your weakness? Do you think? Well, yeah. You see, when you do have a set routine and a set thing, you can do it for four people. You can go anywhere, and you can do it for four people. I can never do that. That is not an option for me. My options are: I need people. Yeah. Sure. The more the people, the better it gets. You know? Well, it's like that energy thing you're talking about. It is. It's an exchange of energy between what I'm trying to present and what the audience is willing to accept. And when you meld or mesh, then it's fantastic. It's lovely. But I can't stand on a, you know, and just juggle. I can't stand to do a set bit. You know? I can't improvise with somebody else and have no audience. I, I can't do that work. Yeah. Improv is the same. Yeah. But at least with improv, I mean, I, I can remember in, I think it was Tasmania, you and Derek were there, and I was there. Taste and of Tasmania. That's the one, yeah. And you guys were on a pitch that wasn't really great. There was no people. And you just spoke to each other. That's not an option for me. I stand on the pitch. There's nobody to speak to. True. So, True. It has, you know, everything has its pluses and minus, you know? <laughs> yeah. And people with set routines. Uh, you know, David is a checkerboard guy. is very, very good at having his bits. And he could move bits here, move bits there, and make it accommodate to almost any environment. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, another successful example of somebody who did bits style. I've never done bits. So a festival like Glastonbury is ideal for you. Yeah, I very much enjoyed doing Glastonbury. I was on their circus stage for probably, I think it's seven, eight years maybe. Yeah. And I believe I've got one of the largest audiences they've ever had in their entire history. I've seen a photo or two yeah. of you standing in a sea of people. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's uh, estimated around 4,000 people in an open field at the circus stage that had never even come close to 1,000 or 500 even before. And there's a lot of drugs at that festival. Uh, yeah, there's tons of drugs. Yeah, yeah. So you, I can imagine all these people are off their tits on drugs. Well, not so much anymore in Glastonbury. Right? Oh, yeah? Well, you know, Glastonbury, you've been there. It's gentrified. It has. It's all yuppies now, or older hippies, that have careers that cost 250 pounds right. for one ticket, 50 pounds to park your car, and you haven't even put up your tent. 
So it's not exactly bringing in the old the uh, hippies. Yeah, right. But what's fun about it is that they're all wanting to be hippies. They kind of want to think they're taking drugs, even though they're not. So they play along with that scenario of druggy kind of world. It's, it's, it's much more gentrified than that now. Right. The drugs and all that stuff happened with performers, like, we, backstage. Yes, at the um, nip-in. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I never spent very much time at the nip-in. I never lasted there long. I got too drunk the too quickly. The place didn't open until 5.30 in the morning. That's a good time to open. Yeah, so it kind of drew in the people that like to stay awake for a long time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I never knew about cocaine, really, until no. later on. It's like, oh, that's why they're all awake. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, how, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm drinking with you. How come you're not getting drunk and I am? <laughs> I didn't know about the I didn't know about the cocaine. Oh, there were other drugs they would take as well. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there was. Were you there the year that member of parliament died? Yeah. 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 He died in a porta potty. Yeah. Yeah. Do that you, was kind of weird. Do you know what happened? Uh, I'm not sure. I vague memory of a, either a drug overdose or a heart attack. Right. Or both. Or possibly both. Right. Yeah. What a way to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the Glastonbury well, porta yeah, potties. For, for those who are listening who have never been to Glastonbury, you don't want to go anywhere near a porta potty in Glastonbury. <laughs> well, it's like 650,000 people, right? Something like that, or 300,000 people? I can't remember exactly now how many people. Maybe it's go like there something like 300,000 people. I think it is somewhere around 300,000 people, yeah. and they all use that one toilet. Yeah. And. I remember very clearly that the first day I arrived and Pee Wee gave me the tour. Right? Oh, right. And I saw the toilet situation and I basically didn't eat. So and, you didn't have to use it. And I didn't shit for five days <laughs> because I was terrified of the toilet situation. You see, I've got a tip for anybody listening. If you ever end up at Glastonbury, go on YouTube or something and watch how people in the... Um, Third world countries have a shit. They don't sit on the toilet seat. No. They squat. You can actually just squat. And I'm sure a lot of people do. Yeah, your ass doesn't have to touch that thing. No, there's shit all over that seat. Oh, my God. <laughs> and on the walls and I know. <laughs> everywhere, you name it. Well, I've been very lucky and have been able to have somewhere like a caravan, so... It's made that a hell of a lot nicer. Well, the festival, um, the artist's section is a little bit nicer than the regular punter's area. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. The backstage area for the for those people is much, much nicer. The bar's cheaper, the beer's cheaper backstage, everything. You hang out quite a bit backstage. Oh, no, it was a good time. It's definitely a great mm. time. Uh, they do festivals well. Mm. Some of my favorite places in the world is Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be in Belfast in a couple of couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. Um, are you talking about festivals or? Uh, this is a one dayer, <clears throat> and it's um, an integration event where the Orangeman Parade happens, and when the parade's over, they're having a number of shows in a park. Okay. And I'm one of them. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll go in, fly in early, do the show, one show a day, and then catch a plane home. That's the best part of the job, eh? Traveling to different places. And oh, fantastic. It's taken me all over the world. 
It's like you were saying that you went to the North Pole. I've been to the North Pole with a military tour. The Canadian Armed Forces have like a USO show or whatever you want to call it where they take entertainers up and entertain the troops in remote areas. And one of the stops was uh, Alert, the very northern tip of Ellesmere Island in Canada, which is, I think, about 300 miles south of the magnetic North Pole. All right. I've been all up through Southeast Asia. I've been to, you know, like yourself, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, uh, as far north as I can, and then quite a bit far south. <laughs> all because you can juggle any three objects. All because I can juggle any three objects, and I have a big gob. <laughs> I, I can't even juggle any three objects anymore now. I just got a big gob. <laughs> I saw you try to juggle a Slurpee. Yeah. And uh, a cigarette. A cigarette and a scooter. And a scooter, yeah. <laughs> um, you very nearly pulled it off. I don't care. Yeah, but that Slurpee was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? Oh, I, everybody likes those things, so I don't give a shit. <laughs> Technically, juggling, if you're going to go for a juggling record, I think it works that whatever amount of objects you're going for, you have to double that in throws. So if you're going for the record of 13, 14, 15, you have to make, let's say 15, you have to make 30 throws. So technically, juggling is with three objects would be six throws. I really don't often make six throws. Right. There was an article about me in the uh, International Jugglers World magazine, and the headline of the, the thing was, uh, the world's only non-juggling juggler. <laughs> People routinely would, was, God, would come up to me after the show and go, you're the best juggler I've ever seen, and the next show, or the show that just happened before me or after me, are these phenomenal jugglers juggling 97 objects at once while balanced on a pole 87 feet in the air. <laughs> Amateurs. Well, it's like anybody out here. You know, it isn't a matter of what you do, it's how you do it. Yeah. It's the style and it's the character in which you present the material to the public and how they respond to that. You know? Yeah. The secret, the big secret to street shows is, you know, get your fucking ego out of the picture and listen to your audience. They'll tell you whether you're any good. But you have to adjust, you still have to adjust for the places you go to, like you've performed in Dubai? Uh, no, I have not done Dubai. Oh, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't do Dubai, though. Well, I was going to say, because uh, um, uh, Byron, was, we were drinking with Byron last night, uh, and, yeah, and he yeah. said that he went to Dubai, but yeah. he couldn't do half of his material. No. Well, I would never work in Dubai. Moral reason? Oh, no, it's nothing to do with morality. <laughs> Jesus, no. No, it's just, I know it wouldn't work. Right. I went and did a, a festival in Macedonia. He said, oh, no, yeah, they understand the English. Don't worry, I went and did a show. And he said, Jesus Christ almighty. And nobody understood a word I was saying. I was way too fast for them to understand. And right. I didn't do a trick. Right. But that didn't work at all. Yeah, Derek and I performed in Covent Garden mm -hmm. in September. I think it was September, the month of September. Yep. And all the crowds were looking at us like we were space aliens. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong? This is London. Turns out they were all tourists. Yeah, right. Right? right. Italians and Germans. Like, nobody knew what the fuck we were saying. And yeah, I was just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. No wonder they, you know, they really were staring at us blankly. Yeah. Well, they didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that happens quite a bit. Did you ever perform in uh, Edinburgh? Yeah. I had just... a weird performing thing in Edinburgh. What happened? Well, one of the first trips I did to the UK, I got hired for a tour. 
and I was uh, one of a few acts representing Canada at the Commonwealth Games oh. in so, Manchester. Okay. And we got a couple of gigs on either side of this at, at festivals as well. So you had to do Manchester, Leeds, Edinburgh, and a few other, the other gigs. And I was paid, and I went up to Edinburgh, and they thought I was a walk-by juggling clown. So I went out on the street, and I was being paid. Really, you know, that's like 500 pounds a day. I went out in the street, did my thing, blocked off the street, closed the whole audience off. And Edinburgh's a busker's gig, right? Heaven, busker heaven. It is busker heaven, but I, I was taking, that's the only place I could work was taking a busker's spot away from them. Oh. So that Edinburgh just said, after one show, they said, have the next four days off. Uh, it's not going to work out. We, didn't, we thought you were a walk-by act, and we'll pay you anyway. All that's fine. That was my experience with Edinburgh. So you were so good, I, they fired you. Can't <laughs> <tell me. laughs> oh, that's funny. It was funny. It was very funny. I enjoyed that. Though. So I got to walk around and look and see. And, yeah. Yeah. And beautiful. I mean, like, obviously, you get oh, to it's a gorgeous city. perform in all these beautiful spots as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all over the world. Do you have any favorite spots? Ireland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love Ireland. They're always up for the crack. That's not crack cocaine. <laughs> it's an expression. They're they're up for the crack. They're up for the fun. They're up for the laugh. Yeah. And they're very outgoing about that. Really fun, fun audiences. And I, I really do quite like the German audiences, obviously. I like the German audiences, too. They're really a lot of fun. They're willing to play along. You don't really know sometimes, but once you get used to that, it's fine. Yeah. Because they're a bit more they're not as vocal in their responses. But once they like you, they will play along and they will have a good time mm -hmm. and they really do enjoy it and the Dutch I enjoy the Dutch audiences Belgium I like so I guess all of Northern Europe you could work because they all, oh yeah I've done quite a bit of work yeah, over there now they can yeah. all speak English I suppose yeah English is not a problem at all I guess that's the one good thing of World War Two is uh, it's all English <laughs> <laughs> it's my native tongue I'm all right with that so when did you start running festivals the first one I ever did was in Vancouver when I was still living here, the very first Vancouver Buskers Festival ever. I was responsible for all the entertainment and setting up the pitches and doing all that. I ran that quite a long time ago. Was that when it was at the art well, gallery? Yeah, that's right. We might have been there or at one of those Possibly. years. Possibly. Yeah. It would have been the one after. It wasn't the one I, I wouldn't have okay. hired you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I have. <laughs> it was really funny. It was um, the year Lee Ross was there. Mm. I brought Lee up, and um, unbeknownst to me, uh, Cirque du Soleil, a casting agent, was looking for acts. And that's when Lee Ross got the gig. They yeah. saw him on that very stage at the art gallery when I brought him in for the first Buskers Festival. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think within about six months or a year later, he was contracted to do uh, two years for Sultan Boko as their main act. Which was like a great gig slash terrible, terrible gig. at the same time. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a story unto itself. That's a story Lee should probably tell. <laughs> but you're responsible for it. I brought him here, and coincidentally, there was agents. Uh, the Cirque du Soleil people were here looking. Yeah. Because at that time, too, there wasn't a lot of big buskers festivals. International buskers festivals mm -hmm. still was early. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so... Do you still enjoy it, running festivals? Uh, yeah, I like working as a consultant now. Right. I'm quite happy to tell people how 
to make it work. <laughs> do you do it in the Glenn Singer style, where you no, yell at them? I don't do anything in Glenn Singer style. <laughs> no, I don't raise my voice at anybody, ever. <laughs> well, you don't need to. No. No, it's very good. Uh, the festivals I run in, I started one in Shrewsbury, I got another one in Ashbourne, did one in Wolverhampton. Uh, what I did fringe festivals over here. I ran the Victoria Fringe Festival for two years. I ran the Vancouver Fringe Festival for a couple of years. I've always been there. Reasonably organized. Yeah, the Shrewsbury Festival you did was small but fun. Oh, it was great fun, yeah. And I remember this uh, guy here that I'm pointing at is Mr. David Aiken. Yeah. He did... We, well, we all... He did the show. We did you. You produced a show in a graveyard. Yeah, it was great. Was yeah. that was that the only time you did that? Yeah. Oh, it's because you had um, uh, Woody bought money. Yeah, 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 yeah. The guy with the rice and the records and yes, what a funny, indeed. ridiculous act. It was insanely ridiculous. Oh, that, that's the thing, you know. I guess. And David did a bit as well, and Galumpha, mm-hmm. I think, did a bit, and. I don't remember who else was in that one. I love those weirdo English acts, like oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Maynard Flip Flap. Oh, you love Maynard Flip Flap, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. You were talking about, are, are you going to give him a call? Maybe meet up with him? One day. You hope? <laughs> well, I was talking about him last night because I just loved the quirky little bits that he mm. had, you know? Not your typical street show. Yeah, I like typical street shows, but I like things different as well, and I like to put new things into the picture that aren't comfortable or that are comfortable when you're there but different mm-hmm. yeah. but what about um trouble do you ever get any trouble with some of these characters me yeah never no you were not well you and i ha- uh we talked about this last night yeah um i don't tolerate it <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about like many many years ago we had this thing you and I were oh yes yes we would yes. like we, we were playing around a little bit and yeah so I would like sneak up behind you and just slap you in the ass yeah and, and you'd do it to me and, the, and you but, one time you came up behind me and slapped me so fucking hard that I turned around like a pit bull and pinned you to the floor and said don't ever again and not a yell it was no, just like a, a low growl like a wolf mother just fucking just yes I would have ripped your throat out <laughs> if you had done it again and I just it was like that moment in the street show where just like I saw the eyes and I was like yeah yeah don't go there this is over <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was uh, yeah it's been fun my life now is, is interesting as well I don't do as many shows do you miss that I've kind of come out a little bit of retirement but I'm trying to retire my partner Rosie has told me to yeah, that I'm heckling the um, people walking by our shop. <laughs> and that I should probably go perform again. Right. <laughs> because I, you sell antiques now. Correct. Yeah, I sell antiques. And Rosie and I make a lot of stuff. And we sell antique treasures in England. But that's what that came out of you living in the UK. Or was that like, oh, one day I'm going to own an, an antique, antique shop? shop? No. No. No, I don't play life that way. That's way too premeditated for my taste. Yeah. Yeah. But it does seem like it came out of left field. I did. You're like, Bill Ferguson owns an antique shop? Yeah, it's great. It's a popular shop. It's fun. Well, you showed some of the stuff that you were making. That- no, well, I'm, yeah, I just spoke with Rosie today on this lighting project. We've got to light a new bar. We've got to make a bar funky, mm. which is fun. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Life's an adventure. And, you know, doors open, like we had mentioned earlier, and you go for the ride. Yeah. So, yeah. You stay open, accessible, and who knows where the ride takes you. Well, that whole idea of the fool being close to the king, mm. you know that? I live in England. I have very little interest in history. 
Oh, right. <laughs> well, I was going to make a reference to us all being fools. We, yeah, we, are. we do get to travel and see lots of things that we oh, wouldn't we normally get to see. Fantastic stuff and yeah. get into doors that you know really any other way would be very difficult to get into. Do you have any like favorite festivals or events? There's too many stories and memories that I have of stuff that's been fun. Well, we should tell a few of those stories. Well, just so everybody understands that you know, not all shows are successful. I was hired to do a corporate party in Felix Stowe in England, and it was a very expensive party, and it happened to be for a bunch of shipping magnets, and it was all commercial shipping magnets, and this was their big do, awards, the whole ceremony, black tie and everything, and then for some godforsaken reason they thought I would be a good act to put in there, and it was almost the worst show that I've ever done in my life. The audience didn't want to see me. They didn't want to interact. They just wanted somebody to do tricks and be cute. Yeah, I finished the show. It was horrible, and I really, really just wanted to go in the car and drive home. And I couldn't, unfortunately. I was stuck at a hotel for a few hours waiting to get paid. And finally did get paid, and I had the hotel for the night, and I couldn't leave my room. I got in the car and drove, like, I think it was six or seven hours home, at two in the morning just to get the hell away from there. <laughs> Derek and I had a similar situation. Hey, gang. Hey. Uh, we did a show behind Chicken Wire. Oh, nice. At the Great Northern Hotel in... Lovely. In, in uh, Byron Bay, Australia. Australia, yeah. And they were throwing billiard balls at us. Oh. And we just looked at each other yeah, yeah. and did, ignored the audience. And when the show was over, we didn't bother to stick around to get paid. Oh, you didn't? We just bolted. Yeah. We're right, like, oh right. my God, we got to get the fuck out of this place. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it, this is a busy green room, and there's a festival and going on, and you have a show to do. So let's just call it and say, thanks, Bill. Say my that. pleasure. Say you that. are very welcome, Eric. I know people have been trying to get me to do this for a while. Well. Glad it's finally happened. <laughs> I think it's lovely to keep some kind of historical document of this world that is changing so rapidly. Uh, I think you guys are doing a great job. I'm very happy to be part of it. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com backslash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. 
And to close, we wanted to share one last technique used by Bill Ferguson during street shows that's both incredibly effective while at the same time being somewhat counterintuitive. At the beginning of a show, if people will stop and I'll look at them and I'll talk to them, and if they're not engaging with me at all, then I'll ask them to leave. <laughs> I have gone in many, many shows over the years and thrown people out, like literally out. Like, stop the show, go into the audience, grab them by the hand, and tell them they're miserable old farts. Get out. We don't want your energy. I'm sure that works. Ironically, what happens is that person gets thrown out, inevitably, 99.99% of the time, will return in about three minutes when I'm back on the stage. And they want to see the show now, more than anything in the world. And I'll continue to throw them out. <laughs> It become a running gag for me. Yeah, yeah. I just continue to throw them out, so they'll never see the show. But now they want nothing more than to see the show, and we'll come back to the next one. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, who handled the preliminary edit, Eric Amber, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. My semen is everywhere. <laughs> <laughs>